If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Hi, folks. Welcome to this month's, not weeks, LA Not So Confidential with Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Hey, guys. It's good to have you back. Um, Hope everybody had a great set of holidays. And we are coming back at you this time with another 0.5 episode to provide you with a little bit of education on a specific area of forensic psychology. Take it away, Dr. Shiloh. I'm very excited for this because I could probably talk about this in my sleep. (laughs) I've been talking about it for the last 10 years or so. Uh, But this really grew out of us, you know, loving Mindhunter so much. And in the episodes featuring Jerry Brudos, looking at his at least fetishes, um, not knowing if they rise to the level beyond that, but fetishes with feet and shoes and cross-dressing. So our topic for this more educational episode is going to be paraphilias, and we will break that down for you guys. So um, I know we're going to touch on some areas that may be um, very controversial. Yes, definitely. We're going to talk about you know, the latest research and how do paraphilias form and can they be extinguished or reversed? Or is, We're talk about, is treatment av- available or even possible for right. some of these or needed? So, cause there's a wide span, right? For sure. And after doing lots of trainings, um, either from new psychology students all the way through sexual assault investigators and law enforcement officers, Um, Yeah, there's quite the emotional reaction to some of this. So even though this might be a shorter episode, we just want to let you know that we realize this could touch a nerve with people. Um, We're probably going to miss some stuff just because we know the topic pretty well. Um, And so going back and kind of breaking it down is almost more difficult than researching something new. Because we can go down a rabbit hole in any of those directions. Um, For sure. Yeah. So actually saying that, though, if you're interested, if this uh, brings up ideas of other things that you want us to cover, please tweet us, email us, let us know what more um, you want to know about. And we'll go into depth on areas. Exactly. Or if there's just kind of follow-up questions, um, please feel free to reach out to us. We are okay with fielding um, all of those interests. So um, so what I want to do is kind of start off just looking at the term paraphilia. And the way that I usually explain it to folks is, you know, we think of these unique sexual interests and the most common term is fetish, right? So 
when does it rise to the level of a paraphilia and what does that even mean kind of rising to the level of paraphilia and so the big difference for me is that's actually a clinical term so there is a section in the DSM um, called paraphilic disorders and it was actually changed in the most recent version so instead of for instance voyeurism it's now called voyeuristic disorder so we're trying to not necessarily label the person anymore and to say that they suffer from a disorder. And to also, isn't that also the purpose to, from the previous edition of the DSM, to differentiate between alternative but healthy sexual function versus something Correct. that's pathological, right? Correct. Yes. So you'll, and you'll see as I go through some of these criteria that the real kicker with these is that the person has to have acted on it or it has to really be distressing, significantly distressing to them. So if I would say, well, because you can have an interest that you fantasize about and you don't ever act out on, right? Um, but if in either situation you've acted out on it or not, if it's significantly distressing to that person, for instance, they would seek you know, therapy or help for it, um, then those are going to be the circumstances in which we would say it rises to the level of being more clinical and something we could diagnose rather than the person that has a unique sexual interest and they're perfectly fine with it. Yeah. And that actually, even just that little bit that you're talking about there, Shiloh goes, that's a whole rabbit hole in itself when it comes to, um, expressions of sexuality. So we got to stay on course because that will yes. pull me definitely in, in one direction because it's a I lot know. of controversy. You know, we live in a world it where is. there's increasing polarization um, in the dialogue that we all need to have about sexual diversity. Right. And, you know, this is kind of the, the honeypot for me of what drove my career is just the interest in what makes people think people do the things they do and then adding a criminal element to that sometimes and then adding a human sexuality component is just like the trifecta for me. So, um, so the, in the DSM, there are eight distinct and specific paraphilic disorders that we can diagnose somebody with. And then we also have sort of these catch-all categories. So if uh, clearly... There's a lot of these out there, but we're not going to list them all here. How many did you find, Scott, when you were looking at oh, different? Oh my lord! Um, yeah, I mean, the list, just the basic list that I looked at was about sixty to sixty-five, and then it became. I mean, at that point, I was like, "Come on, give me a break," because I, I, I this was part of the discussion that you and I had because it started. Some of them are actually so specific and like a little titillating and. And, you know, humorous to an extent, um, because if, if you're standing right. on the outside, it seems so alien. But then, as you pointed out, you know, that's one of the problems is this desire to label specifically everything when it doesn't necessarily need to be. I mean, we have a category when which is using being used more broadly in the current version of the DSM, which is uh, disorder X you know, as an example, followed by an NOS. And that NOS stands for not otherwise specified. So really all these 65 examples of paraphilias could easily be lumped into that NOS, right? Right. Because, you know, how many people are suffering from dentrophilia, which is 
being sexually aroused to trees, you know, not many people, I bet you are coming in to therapy for that. And so we're not going to put it in the DSM, but people can basically be attracted to anything if there is a unique interest there that was either, you know, um, was shaped in behavior or is just something that was innate with them. So, um, so let me, let me just go through what the eight paraphilias are in the DSM. Um, and then I'm going to ask you a trivia question, Scott. So get ready. Okay. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we have voyeuristic disorder. Okay. (laughs) We have voyeuristic disorder, which I previously mentioned, exhibitionistic disorder, frauderistic disorder. So do you remember what frauderism is, Scott? Yes. Frauderism is the uh, paraphilia of deriving sexual pleasure or erotic uh, pleasure from rubbing one's genitals against either the genitals of another or an inanimate object sometimes. Or against even just another person's body part. That's a big one in Japan on the subways, apparently. Exactly. Exactly. So being in close quarters with somebody like a busy subway train and somebody rubbing up against you. So... Um, okay, and then we have sexual masochism disorder and sexual sadism, sadism disorder. So those are two separate ones. We have pedophilic disorder, fetishitic disorder, and transvestic disorder. So um, those are all pretty specific, and we'll. I'm just going to kind of differentiate a couple for you because some of them sound the same. Um and some people may be going, wait, transvestic disorder, what the heck do you mean by that? Yeah. And I'm offended, but I get it, and we'll we'll talk about it. So um, when we're looking at masochism versus sadism, usually individuals will fit into one of these categories. Not necessarily both. Sometimes there is overlap, um, but usually they fit neatly into one or the other Um So we know that masochism is when somebody is actually wanting to have the pain inflicted on them. And then sadism is going to be the person who is inflicting pain or suffering on somebody else. So when we look at the exact criteria to meet for these, and I hope this hasn't been clear as mud so far, but hopefully we're going to clear it up a little bit. There's a basic skeleton of criteria that you need to meet to be diagnosed with one of these disorders. So the first is that this has to actually be something that's been going on for a period of time. And that period of time is at least six months where the individual is having reoccurrent, intense sexual arousal from whatever their specific category is. Okay, so we're talking about a frame of time that is a minimum of six months. Right, so not just because you have one fleeting thought or one, you know, fantasy that you thought of one time, we're not going to slap this label on you, right? So um, this has to be something that's been ongoing. Um, The second criteria is that the person has to have acted on it or... They are just having very strong sexual urges or fantasies that are causing some sort of significant distress in their life. So that can be 
impairment in their social functioning, their relationships, work. Um, you know, if they can't get to work the next day because they are watching um, exhibitionism type porn every day or you right. know, whatever it is. Well, um, wait, okay, let me let me ask you for clarification then. Sure. So are we talking about rumination? So if, if even if they haven't, you because you said or in regards to practice. So if it's not, mm-hmm. action has not been taken, but there's chronic rumination. Sexual, no, fixation. Well, it, has, it has to be sexual urges or fantasies. Okay. So not just cognitive. They're not just thinking about it, but they're actually getting aroused. There's, um, you know, usually masturbation is involved. So there's a pairing of behavior with it. Okay. Um. But yeah, if so, if if they haven't acted on it, the other piece of the criteria is that it has to be distressful to them. And a lot of ways that this becomes distressful is in their relationships. Either they can't share this with their partner, or they don't find partners who also want to engage in this sort of behavior, or the partner can't engage by definition of what it is. So, like with voyeurism. There is no engagement. Yeah, the thing that they're aroused to is observing an unsuspecting person Ah, who's naked or in the process of disrobing or someone else engaging in sexual activity. So the whole purpose of it is that they don't know that they're being observed necessarily. You know what I mean? Okay, exactly. Okay. Um, Or it's going to involve somebody who is non-consenting. So with exhibitionism... The hallmark of that is that you are exposing your genitals to somebody who is non-consenting to it, who didn't say, yeah, hey, flash me. Right. It's somebody who is not knowing that that is going to happen. So um, so that's the second prong. And then the third one is pretty easy that that person has to be at least 18 years old. So... With that, um, you know we don't. And why go do you around. think they? Why do you think they want to specify that? Well, it's sexuality, right? So we're dealing with disorders that are having to do with human sexuality, and there's so much variation in development. Um, so they want to. They want to. You definitely want to differentiate this between an adult activity versus something like kids playing doctor or. Right. Somebody that's right. on the playground and they moon another student, which is just a, an act, a, a playful act of defiance or something Correct. as opposed it's, to something that's sexual, sexually yeah, derived. Yeah, it's not indicative of exhibitionism necessarily. Right. So, okay. yeah, he's, people who are experimenting or developing their own um, sexual identity at a more adolescent age, you know, we again, we don't need to be labeling people prematurely. So, um, so... Scott, here's your trivia question. What do you think <laughs> is the most common paraphilia? Oh, I, I'm i going to give a caveat because I think okay. I'm not sure if it's going to be the same one, but I do know that the, the most prevalent fetish mm-hmm. among heterosexual men is uh, feet and shoes, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, I think yeah. it is. I think it is. Um, actually, exhibitionism... Or I should say, exhibitionistic disorder is the most common paraphilia. Okay, I did not know that. Yeah, so I did not know that. which I find interesting because it's also one of them that is illegal. Um, right. But yeah, it is it is the most common in terms of what 
people seek treatment for as well as get in trouble for. So um, with it being illegal, you know, obviously it's going to come to the attention of law enforcement when that person is caught. So just kind of an interesting side note. Um, also, kind of what I always find fascinating is the research says that when somebody has been diagnosed or we do identify that they have a paraphilia, that paraphilias usually travel in threes. That person will probably have what? two others. Yes. I didn't know this. Yeah. Okay, yeah. hold on. I'm looking at my, because I took a bunch of research for this. Mm-hmm. So and When the, was the, yeah, tell me more about that. The cluster, the most common cluster, again, is exhibitionistic disorder, voyeuristic okay. disorder, um, and frauderism. So frauderistic disorder. So that's the most common cluster, but yes, if, if you're, and okay. that's something I always kept in mind is an, an evaluator with sexual offenders is if there was one prominent one that was sticking out to me, then it was like, oh, okay, I need to do a little bit more digging and yeah, let's be careful how we say sticking out. <laughs> It was just no, sticking out to me. It was just sticking out. But no, look at that because, okay, that's fascinating because I can see how those three things are related. Absolutely. Oh, sure, because sure. they're all uh, actions that uh, take away control from the other person. Right. And they're, the- they're somewhat passive. You know, if you're talking about viewing someone or being viewed or just kind of rubbing up, it, you know, it doesn't have this violent uh, element to it. Well, the frauderism, and especially for the incidents that it takes place in uh, in Japan, which we have a lot of research on, that is happens with victims who sometimes don't know that it's actually happening to them because True. the trains there, the metro system, uh, it's just accepted that they right. are all overcrowded. Right. I mean, you can see pictures. Any kind of Google search will show you pictures of how tightly they are packed into those trains. So that's one of the problems in you, you sometimes you can't even identify who these perpetrators are because they're packed like sardines on those sure. trains. And so maybe the woman's like, Oh, did his briefcase bump up, up against me? Or was that something else? You know, if you can't even literally turn around to see, right. Imagine how vulnerable that is. And yeah, another example of, you know, uh, someone who's in a position where they really have no power, you, you literally can't move except for what these, these passive, but nonviolent, but altogether, you know, demeaning actions against another person. Right. Right. So fascinating of the eight that are in the DSM voyeuristic disorder, exhibitionistic disorder and frauderistic disorder are illegal acts here in the United States. Um, Sexual masochism disorder and sexual sadism disorder, not illegal acts. Those can happen between consenting adults. Um, Pedophilic disorder. um, So this is a disorder. Again, not necessarily um, does everyone act out on this. So I want to kind of dive into talking about the difference between pedophilia and child molesters or child molesting. Um, Was there anything you wanted to add before we moved on, Scott? Yeah. The the things that are fascinating to me about this whole area that we're discussing is that except for masochism, paraphilias Mm -hmm. are almost exclusively diagnosed in men. Yep. I mean, that that to me is fascinating. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's got to be... 
well, I, I don't know what it's got to be, but it would seem to me that it'd be a, definitely a combination of both developmental, physiological, and environmental factors. Well, in the research that we have on sexual fantasy, one distinct markers, even though men and women, like if you were to look at the top 10 fantasies of men and women, there's a lot of crossover, actually, of um, same types of scenarios or fantasies. But with men, they fantasize and will say in, you know, follow-up interviews, there's, these are things I fantasize about and I hope that they happen one day. Whereas women say, no, these are my fantasies. They're for my head. These are not things I want to happen in the future. So whether, whether women, you know, think it through a little bit more and like, oh no, if I were to actually engage in a threesome, that would be very emotional and that would cause rifts here and, you know, I don't even know the reason necessarily, but women tend or- to keep that inside. Interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah. For the most part. And again, there, there are no absolutes here. Of course there are outliers and we're making some blanket statements, but I mean, especially in sexuality, there's, there's no absolutes with what we're talking about. So. Yeah. That's fascinating to me. Okay. Um, and then you were going to expound on that. Pedophilia. Um, okay. So again, Pedophilia is the sexual interest in prepubescent children. So that in and of itself is kind of a interesting thing to look at because what is pubescence necessarily? So um, it, we don't go by ages because we're talking about physical development of an individual we, person. Yes, which can vary from individual to individual. It can vary from culture to culture. It can. Uh, Within that, just based on environmental factors, genetic factors, diet, environment, just so many Mm -hmm. different things Mm -hmm. um, really contribute to that. Absolutely. Um, So generally right now, you know, we're looking at prepubescence is before a child has developed any secondary sexual characteristics. So um, breast buds or... Um, widening of the shoulders for boys, or of course, you know, pubic hair or hair under the armpits, um, widening of the hips for girls, you know, things that happen in pubescence. Um, when those start happening, then we say that that person has entered pubescence. So there's even kind of a prepubescent, in pubescence, and then post pubescent <laughs> stage, right. really. So, so again, it, it gets wonky when when it starts getting down to actual numbers, which is what right. our legal system has. To, I mean, our legal system has to be based on Something some sort of set of parameters, yeah. right? So they they are going with ages where you could take a, a thirteen year old uh, young woman on one hand and another thirteen year old on another hand, and they could be at completely different stages. of uh, sexual uh, development. And they could be at different stages of emotional and psychological maturity. Exactly. Exactly. So that's the other level that, um, you know, really doesn't get looked at so much, especially when we're talking about the criminal justice system. Um, But so for pedophilic disorder, these individuals are truly attracted to prepubescent children, children that do not have any of these secondary sex characteristics yet. Um, 
And they can be, we have a couple subtypes of exclusive or non-exclusive. And so exclusive would mean that is their only sexual interest. Non-exclusive would mean that they are also sexually attracted to post-pubescent individuals or adults. So you can have someone that is married and genuinely attracted to their adult partner, but also sexually attracted to prepubescent children, and that would be a non-exclusive type of pedophilic disorder. And one of the things I think that makes it more confusing is because pedophile, pedophilia are terms that, especially in today's culture, are tossed around a lot mm-hmm. when they're not actually being used in the accurate way. And once again, folks, this is this stuff is not easy to listen to. We get it. We get it because it it brings up a lot of emotional reaction. But just for the sake of trying to get people on the same page about what our bodies are designed to do through evolution, which is recognize secondary sexual characteristics in uh, people, individuals of the same or opposite sex, that's a procreative drive. I mean, that's kind of built into us. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the laws of the culture, the laws of the the state, the government, or the norms and the cultural norms and morals of our society allow for that, and nor should they, depending on the level of emotional development of that individual. But there should be a real distinction between pedophilia and what we call hebophilia. Right. Can you, so, can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. So hebophilia is, it. if I had to put an age range on it, we're looking at like 11 to 14 years old. So kind of that gray period where people are going through pubescence. Um, so they are starting to develop, um, but still probably a, a younger presentation. Right. Um, so it, as opposed to child, this would be then the category that we would call youth. Um, and up to up until last year, youth was actually the most searched key term in pornography. Oh, wow. Um, it changed to lesbian, I think, last year. Um, but so there, there's, there's obviously a, a bigger draw towards... Um, younger individuals who are starting to develop um, sexual, physical sexual characteristics um, that is enticing to a lot of individuals. Um, If you think of, you know, the barely legal type porn that does very well, um, you know, that sort of explains, and there's a phenomenal book, and I'll throw it up on the website, that if you want sort of the hard number crunching, um, data about looking at how we view porn in this country and I, and, and why and what types of porn. Um, I will put that on there. I can't remember the name of the book right now. Yeah, um, I think that would be helpful. Oh, it's such a great read and um, it's, it's a wonderful book. So it's nice to see it from a scientific point of view and not a psychological point of view. Um, but yeah, so hebophilia is kind of looking at the more sort of early teenager stage that somebody is attracted to. Um, because when most, especially in the United States, if we're talking about this culture, by the time that individuals are late teenage years, they are post-pubescent, 
right? So right. they have developed um, in most, well, I'm not going to say in most states. Actually, the average age of consent in the United States is 16. Um, in California, it's 18 still. Um, but by 16, 17, 18, um, where the majority of our age of consent for sexual activity is, uh, but we're talking about post-pubescent individuals, even though some people may, may still think of those individuals as children. So, yeah, yeah I mean, so it's a lot. It's a lot to digest. Um, it, going back to talking about pedophilic disorder. Now, we know from talking about the criteria that somebody doesn't necessarily have to have acted on these urges, right? So... There are individuals out there that we could diagnose with pedophilic disorder that are not child molesters. So they have never touched a child. They have never committed a crime. And do or what we would call in, in this area, the profession, we call it a hands on offense. So contact never, offense. Yeah. A, so, a, oh, is that the new term? Is yeah, we're trying offense? to hands on hands off sounds more too creepy, I think. So oh, good point. Trying yeah. to get go towards contact and non contact offense. But yes, they could. It could not have a tangible victim out there and um, be uh, managing this disorder and or really distressed about it, yet haven't created any victims. Um, so I think, Scott, when you were talking earlier about misusing this term, um, th- definitely the media is a place where you hear the term thrown around a lot, and it's not interchangeable with child molester. So. Right. And then um, also, you know, and which is, you know, once again, not condoning any uh, exploitation of an underage individual. But once again, this kind of um, reflects kind of what goes on uh, in the media sometimes. If it bleeds, it leads, right? You know, right. they want something yep. that's salacious. And so it's just easy to toss around terms um, that, you know... Uh, People don't know the person that's reporting doesn't know what they're actually saying. And the person who's hearing it doesn't understand what's being said either. You know, everyone on both sides of that conversation, unless you're coming from a clinical uh, perspective or you're really trying to be a critical thinker, Mm -hmm. people are making assumptions. So if nothing else, I would hope that people who are listening to this really think about like the, the big picture of what it means in our culture and what um, consent means versus or in, in conjunction or in um, nexus with um, the idea of development and maturity. Those things are all important to look at together instead of separately um, and in a manner that victimizes people. Right, right. And conversely, somebody who does have a contact offense with a child Actually, most of the time it is not, well, I don't want to say most of the time, probably 50-50, that person would not be diagnosed with pedophilic disorder. So there are cases, and 50% of the cases, excuse me, in which the offender offends because of an opportunistic or situational or environmental right. factor, which is, it's, it's a lot also to understand. And I, I we really don't have time to go into that. But once again, but, the takeaway for that, from me that I would want people to know is that it's bad. <laughs> it is very bad. Yeah. 
However, it's reflective of an opportunistic event or opening versus the existence of an active paraphilia. Right. 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 Exactly. So it is, if you think of it as the, this perfect storm of events, um, and triggers that lead to this person to acting out with somebody who is underage, um, it is not a pervasive sexual interest of theirs, but it is a more situational situation. Um, so it, it's not inter- necessarily interchangeable. When we talk about pedophile and child molester. Can they overlap? Yes, of course. There are pedophiles that offend and um, offend compulsively and over you know many, many years, and we've all heard all of the stories. Um, but I, I really wanted to make that distinction um, – and I think, you know, also, Scott, you know, talking about just having an open mind to this conversation, um, you know, Dr. James Cantor out of Canada is a leading researcher in this area, especially when it comes to looking at the biological bases for pedophilia. Um, but he says, you know, if we can just wrap our minds around understanding the disorder for one, and then also where is it coming from? That equals prevention. We can then start to talk about prevention. And I think everyone gets on board at that point. You know, if we talk about, geez, how can we actually prevent child sexual abuse? Exactly. Then people open up their minds to it. So, Well, and then also that opens up a conversation about healthy sexuality mm-hmm. and, you know, trying to get away from this dialogue, this very limited dialogue in our culture where parents don't take responsibility for communicating to their children about sexuality. What they do is they say, don't do it. Right. Don't do it. (laughs) Yeah. Abstinence programs don't work. They never have the stats absolutely proved they do not work. Um, unless they're, you know, hand in hand with strong educational programs that don't, make this like the forbidden fruit for, for children. Right. Right. And so because people aren't coming forward and saying, hi, I'm a pedophile, please study me or interview me. We don't really know what the percentage of the population could be diagnosed with pedophilic disorder. Um, old numbers, I heard it was less than 5%. I think that's pretty high. What I'm hearing recently is probably less than 1% of the population. Hmm. Um, so it, it's just, it's hard to throw numbers some, on something that we just don't know and that people aren't willing to come forward with. So, um, but as of right now, you know, a lot of the research and again, um, that Dr. James Cantor is the leader on and I, um, encourage you to look up his name and there's some great YouTube videos with some breakdowns of his research out there. Um, but he is really looking at things like, um, brain imaging and he has a lab where he has been able to get a good deal of individuals diagnosed with this disorder to participate. Um, but really the, all the research is pointing towards this being, uh, a, a process that is happening in utero. So, um, that's so fascinating. The organization and development of the brain is just happening differently, um, during development. And so, you know, there's a lot of biological markers that he's been able to, um, 
to really pinpoint that individuals with pedophilic disorder uh, significantly um, have present as But you also had some other ones, too. I mean, so what are the other characteristics that can emerge? Well, significantly. Um, Physically, right? Didn't you have some of those? Yeah. So so physically. Not that you have them. Sorry. (laughs) Right. No, I don't have them. Um, Physically, so shorter in stature, so um, height, um, as well as left-handedness. Um, and then, uh, lower IQs and I want to say there was another one that is, uh, I can't remember, but they have, they have attributed, uh, or no, I'm sorry, not attributed. They have accounted for things like head injuries and, you know, uh, things that could happen after birth. Um, yeah. they have ruled all of those out and had some really solid research. So, you know, that is fascinating to me because I remember in my more in the period of time that I worked more intensely with the offender population, mm-hmm. um, you really started to see definitely subgroups. Mm-hmm. You know, um, definitely I have had that experience of working with individuals who had those physiological characteristics. Mm-hmm. And then I've also met with other people, other individuals. I remember working long-term with a young man who had insight into that this was not right. Um, You know, he was, there was never any justification for his, um, his viewing of the materials and his, you know, his fantasy about those materials. Mm -hmm. But what I found was there was a direct inverse relationship with his level of social anxiety and that erotomanic recall of those images. Mm-hmm. So if he was stressed out, right, that was his go-to coping meso- mechanism sure. was those particular set of fantasies as opposed to when, as his life really got back in order with, in every aspect, I mean, every domain of his life, there was incremental improvement along with development of real significant coping skills. As he got better at being an adult, all of that fantasy focus receded into the background. And obviously this is somebody that's one of, you know, a particular subgroup that would not fall into that area of someone who has those in utero conditions, but that's another aspect of this I find really fascinating. So it was something that was more conditioned over time. Oh yeah. Um, And so with proper treatment, he was able to extinguish that sexual interest. Right. And then what's fascinating is that when you start doing in-depth with uh, in-depth work um, clinically with these individuals and you can start to really, once you've developed a really strong relationship and they're really opening up to you, what you'll find or what I found, and this is so mine is anecdotal, which is backed up by some research, is the idea that, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, this paraphilia evolution or um, emergence in this particular individual happened at a particular age where there were experiences in the family and not necessarily, I'm not saying that there was molestation, although it, that can actually happen, but like life changing traumatic events, you know, almost like it was the perfect storm of an environmental and emotional stressor and exposure to an event that suddenly like, boom, now we've got this little kernel of a paraphilia that starts to develop and becomes like an area of their safe space of fantasy. 
I'm really, I wish we could get more data and more research on that particular area. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting debate of whether or not, you know, it's always there kind of dormant and does something like that have to happen to make it rise to to the surface or can it be like what I said earlier, kind of conditioned. And that's what we saw a lot with the offenders you and I worked with, um, who had been uh, found guilty of viewing child pornography, um, or child sexual abuse images is that they were saying, Hey, I didn't have any of these urges or feelings before. And then when I started getting into these more taboo types of pornography as part of my pornography addiction or compulsion, I went to these darker, darker areas. And finally it got to, you know, this really horrific stuff. Um, and for some cases, like you and I, we, we got to see with treatment, people extinguish out of that. Yeah. So In the best case scenarios, you saw some real movement there. That's got yeah, amazing. yeah. And so, I mean, it's tough. We, we do the best we can as treatment providers. You know, we can never get inside of someone's head and really know, even with, you know, four polygraphs a year, we don't know necessarily what's going on in their head. Um, but it, it certainly seems like some people, um, have that path of, um, being exposed to that material and then developing the paraphilia. So, yeah. And it's, you know, it's one of those areas that is so difficult. Like we're sitting here, you know, we can talk about it very clinically and Mm -hmm. dispassionately to an extent, you know, we're, we're, Mm -hmm. we're showing a lot of clinical interest and then, you know, I, you know, you and I have talked about this extensively. We both had experiences of meeting people in the therapeutic environment where you really see them as a human. You oh, know, sure. you don't see them as the label that the, the DSM has, but we see them as individuals who are challenged by a mental illness, a condition, a paraphilia that is not all who they are. Right. And it requires us to hold that domain emotionally and psychically. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, we don't have a culture. We don't have a world that does that. What we want to do is paint with a broad brush that, well, that's just evil. Right. You know, we don't want to talk about the fact that relatively good people are capable of doing very bad things. Yes. Yes, absolutely. That's a difficult conversation to have, especially with something that this is a subject that, you know, there's a real ick factor to it. It's it's a dangerous subject to talk about. Right, right. One last thing I definitely want to bring up on that note is that, you know, kind of kind of jumping back to hebophilia, but really more of the uh, post-pubescent, um, you know, late teenage ages that I'm talking about is that you know, oftentimes when I've been interviewing a new client, we talk about what are your sexual interests? And I will ask them, are you sexually attracted to teenagers? And, and this is for heterosexual men. Um, and they'll say, oh no, you know, as if that's the answer that I want to hear. (laughs) Um, but across the board, the research shows that adult men are absolutely attracted to teenage girls, um, and that that is normal. Now, of course, do not act on it if they are under the age of consent in wherever you're at, whatever state you're at. But if they are post-pubescent, 16, 17, 18-year-olds, um, that is absolutely a common 
and normal, dare I say normal, in air quote, um, attraction age for heterosexual men. Exactly, because what you're talking about from, what's the word, what's the term we want to use? Uh, Okay, I'm completely blanking on it. I should have written it down. So just Uh, somebody, you're looking at somebody that is youthful. So if we're looking at it from a, uh, again, like a procreation... Yeah, biological imperative, yeah, right? Yeah. So this is something that chemically is met. Like if we're talking about um, adult heterosexual men mm-hmm. um, who are seeing something that they are attracted to, that on a very primal level is telling me, telling them <laughs> that <laughs> yikes, uh, that this is a viable way to uh, procreate. Exactly. She is of age where she can procreate plus she's young so we can have lots of babies um and she's youthful and more attractive so that will then you know draw him in so again like yes these are very like animalistic caveman type things that we're talking about but that's all embedded in us yeah that's it's embedded still um it's very biological so um you know if anyone tries to Ask any of you adult men out there if you're attracted to teenage girls. It's not a trick question. Maybe say, uh, yeah, post-pubescent teenage girls is <laughs> a safe answer. I don't know. Or if somebody's asking you that the question, like, <laughs> like, let's Maybe hope that's ask not for like a first attorney. date question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you have the right to remain silent. Don't forget that. Exactly. Um, that book that I was thinking of is called A Billion Wicked Thoughts, and I'll put it up on our ref- our resources page on the website. Wow, what a great so, title. Oh, so good. Such a good read. Um, so should we talk about our new favorite Netflix show? Our yeah. Documentary? I mean, and thanks, folks, thanks so much for bearing with us. I mean, uh, we'll probably take what we, you know, the former section and even in future episodes go specifically into some of those areas that are really fascinating. And for some people it might be too clinical, but I think it's stuff that needs to be discussed. Sure. Um, and it's fascinating, but let's lighten it up a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to, we're going to move on to another paraphilia, no less interesting, Mm -hmm. um, and no less of an ick factor for some people, especially if you have been perpetrated upon. I mean, it's a really shocking, um, uh, really shocking experience when uh, you talk to individuals that have been traumatized by being the victims of a voyeur. But we're talking about something that like, this is a sort of a mind blowing series, uh, not a series, a documentary on Netflix. I was actually not familiar with this. And now I've just voraciously devoured uh, the New York, New Yorker article and the Netflix documentary. And I'm going to go on to the audio book and read the original material by Gay Talese, the writer. Um, Shiloh, explain more. So this is a documentary that highlights this individual, Gerald Foose, who from everything shown in the documentary, very likely hits on some of the criteria for voyeuristic disorder. Um, And kind of the key to that for me is that he purchases a motel with the distinct intention of being able to view the people who are staying at his motel without their knowledge. So go ahead. The way this is set up in the documentary is uh, amazing because visually, I mean, how do you tell a story like this? That's, uh, you know, a first person narrative Uh, with, you know, like, do you 
are you like one of the crime shows on investigation discovery that has actors reenacting what they do in this is they do a complete like one sixteenth scale mock-up of the entire motel well that's right because they it's amazing yeah yeah so you see i'm sorry i keep interrupting you i get so excited you too so it's great it's like it's like a dollhouse right which adds a whole other level to how this is, is like how he likes, to, Gerald likes to talk about how he's, you know, exploring humanity when he's really not. He's treating, the, he's objectifying all of these individuals. And they illustrate it by showing him taking the roof off the motel and looking into the rooms. And each, I mean, down to the detail, each bit of furniture is recreated, each lamp, each bedspread, each uh, uh, bathroom faucet is down to one sixteenth scale. I could not and even tell in some scenes. It's hard it, to tell. It is. It was done really, really well. Yeah, it, but it's it lends to the story in a, a really amazing way. It adds a completely additional sort of layer to the whole thing. Um, right. So and, here, here's this, this guy that obviously had this fantasy, right. And intense right. interest. And he said, you know, this started off as, yeah, something sexual. I wanted to watch these people having sex and to, to get me off. But then I started just to see people doing all kinds of different things in private, and, you know, what they thought was the, private. And then he starts taking notes Detailed, detailed, detailed notes. notes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This guy had nothing, nothing else to do. But um, it, it's. I, I think psychologically, the interesting part is him wanting his story told, and kind of the the narcissistic flavor of, um, you know, I may go to jail for some of this stuff because I could be an aider and a better, um, but. He still wanted his story told and reaching out to this journalist about it. Yeah, which adds like a, a completely another layer, right? I mean, this is like, mm-hmm. this goes into a real flavor of narcissism. Sure. You know, sort of an expanded, grandiose sense of self um, that doesn't really, he may give sort of lip service to the idea that he invaded people's privacy, but that quickly fades away. I want to read the first paragraph from the New Yorker article. So we're going to give full um, credit to the New Yorker. Yeah. But this is the way this starts. I know a married man and father of two who bought a 21-room motel near Denver many years ago in an order to become its resident voyeur. With the assistance of his wife, he cut regular... Excuse me. With the assistance of his wife... He cut rectangular holes measuring 6 by 14 inches in the ceilings of more than a dozen rooms. Then he covered the openings with louvered aluminum screens that looked like ventilation grills, but were actually observation vents that allowed him, while he knelt in the attic, to see his guests in the rooms below. He watched them for decades while keeping an exhaustive written record of what he saw and heard. Never once during all those years was he caught. Okay, that <laughs> wow. is, yeah, I have so many reactions to it. I mean, I have so many reactions, especially watching the documentary, because once again, you know, I see him clinically as an individual who has done something that is 
really in its own way is to me is quite heinous, Mm -hmm. you know, just really objectifying and taking away how many hundreds of people's, uh, right to their privacy. Absolutely. What do you, what do you make of, um, the fact that his wife knew about this and was, you know, well, Hey, go ahead and do it. Well, this, this talks about how we, um, we, and we've spoken about this in the past about sort of uh, when we had lovely Jen on that we interviewed for last episode about sort of dominant and passive personalities that can come together in a synergistic relationship for better or for worse. You know, yeah. it would it was very interesting to me that, you know, here he is in this relationship with this woman who's working the front desk and covering for him while he's doing all of this. Right. And although she comes across as um, quite capable and smart and kind and a little odd in the documentary, you know, I had to sit back and go, well, what was it about her that how what was her thought process that made this OK? And how much are we not seeing in this documentary about, you know, did he did he make her do it? Did he threaten her? Sure. Was there some sort of coercive control dynamic that has been set up for a long time that we're really only seeing the surface of in this documentary. Or is it my husband has this interest and, you know, other people may find it really weird, but Hey, it's his own sexual interest. And, you know, just having a, a not, not too conservative view of that. Yeah, no, I get, you know, and I get not having a conservative view. Um, I, I, I'm all for that. I'm all for about being sort of open to new experiences. But when it gets to that point of in, invading, you know, and, in, in, oh, you know, completely. Her, some, somehow she has to make the um, cognitive gymnastic move of denying that this is infringing on other people's rights. Absolutely. Because now so, it is that his sexual interest is more important than these basic rights that these other individuals have. Yes. Yes. That's it. Sure. Sure. Um, Did you think there was anything else kind of, you know, psychologically going on with him or just that what we saw throughout the documentary? I'll say this in watching this because I had only read a few articles of um, Gay Talese, who's a a really well-known writer um, and fascinating guy and actually excellent writer. He's written for the New Yorker. He's written many novels and um and biographies really smart guy he's a he's a you know he's like a he's a journalist who writes um however for those of you i'm not going to give away the whole thing but one of the things that happens is that he was gay to the writer was contacted by gerald Thuse um that he was doing this and this was decades ago hey i'm doing this do you want to write about me so gay to goes and spends a night at the hotel and engages in the voyeuristic behavior as well. Right. So, and although I guess I can't really say it's voyeuristic initially, it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to spy on these people with you. But he, Gaitalis openly admits and asserts that he was watching a couple have sex along with, you know, Gerald and, and he were peering through event, watching this couple having sex. And, you know, the more uh, 
Talese is interviewed about his other experiences as a journalist, it's like he comes across as someone who is very smart mm-hmm. um, and uh, creative. And I mean, the guy is, is, uh, is kind of amazing given the prolific nature of his work. But like Gerald, there's a real sense of narcissism and expansive grandiosity in his own particular psychological sure. makeup that struck me. Right. Yeah. And I was wondering, I did, did you have, did that come across to you as well? It did. And I, I think it was highlighted nicely in the documentary because it talks about his previous work where, um, you know, he was doing a piece on a nudist colony or not even a nudist colony. It was more than that. Right. It was a, it, no, it a was nudist, more than a nudist. It was, Cause it was, this was more of a commune because yeah, yeah. many nudist colonies really have very, very strict rules about sex. Right. This and, was, and this was more of a, like sort of a free love. Commune, yes. I believe. There you go. Thank you. Um, but in, he wasn't just writing a piece about it, but he went and he spent time there and had you and know, engaged, sex with yeah. other individuals and, um, and then had to go home to his wife and go, Oh, by the way, yeah. Um, I wrote an article on this sex commune and I, you know, this is what I did. And now I'm going to go on every news media outlet and talk about it. <laughs> exactly. On every talk show. Right. Or so yeah. it's, it's kind of this, wow, is this someone that just pours himself into his work and you have to, um, accept that or, you know, it kind of like we're talking about with Gerald's wife. Does she just accept that this is her husband's thing and she's going to accept what behaviors come along with that. I don't know. It was a real parallel for me, I think. Um, but yeah, fascinating. I am definitely going to read the book. Um, the it's the voyeurs motel, right? Yeah. I'll I'll put that up on our website as well. So Shiloh, I want to go back because Uh I wanted to ask you then, because you're, I consider you more the, the expert on this area, but so when we talk about, sexual fantasies, the, you know, the, the, I, the question comes up is what is actually pathology when it comes and, to fantasies? Right. Right. So sexual fantasies, what is pathology? And it, like, it's very clear in some other areas. It's about whether or not that person experiences a level of distress, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. Or violates the rights of others because there could be a pedophile out there that takes advantage of a child and mm-hmm. has no distress about it. Right. Exactly. And that's how previous versions of the DSM were written. And that's something that was changed because it was either, you know, you could say, well, with previous criteria, Oh, well he's molesting children, but he's totally fine with it. And it's not distressing to any part of his life. So we're not going to diagnose him. <laughs> yeah. That's not going to work. Um, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, whether or not there has to be a diagnosis to throw somebody in jail, there doesn't. But, um, you know, so yeah, you're I mean, looking the, at the two different worlds of, of where they so often cross, the legal world and the psychological world. Um, and so, I mean, the DSM is pretty specific with those eight. And then, you know, if again, if it's something like a vacuum cleaner, but it's causing someone distress, it can fit into those that sort of other category. Well, you know, you brought up the the concept earlier about the sort of the, the, uh, tri triunal or Mm -hmm. sort of trifecta constellation of those, um, fixations. And while I can't say that it was necessarily narrowed to three, Mm -hmm. this guy, Gerald, who is now an elderly gentleman with some mobility issues, he's, he's bordering on morbidly obese and, 
Um, he comes across as very intelligent and very well spoken, but once again, you know, I would say that there's some uh, characterological pathology going on there. So I would say, you know, there's like sure. sort of, you know, not otherwise specified personality disorders going on. But you and I, when we were going back and forth on this, were also struck by the fact that we get to see him in his home now. Yes. He's no longer in the motel. And he's a collector. Yes. And immediately you and I both <laughs> went, ding, there's a collector. Yep. And we're talking about collecting uh, sports memorabilia. Dolls. Collecting dolls. Collecting, uh, there were some was kind there... of like other thing, like uh, like military-related things. There were a couple of things in the a house lot. there. A lot. And I, I mean, a lot of I mean, the place space was devoted to it. Yeah. Um, categorization of it. Um, so it. As well as like every time they did a scan of the walls, if it wasn't memorabilia or a collectible, it was a picture of himself. Yes. yes. That was really telling to me about, you know, that constellation of concerns. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, that when you and I kind of recognized that that, you know, played into pathology possibly, um, it, for me, it reminded me a lot of the child pornography offenders that we worked with because the collections of images of collections. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that's one of sort of the pathways to, um, viewing child sexual abuse images that has been found is that people have this sort of collective competitive hoarding nature um, that we see in other collections in their house. And then that extends over to um, these images that they can find on the dark web and um, even find, you know, it, it's almost a game to find hard to find images or images that aren't out there anymore. Um, and that's where a lot of the, the trading takes place too, is in, hey, I want to finish my collection or this is difficult to find Maybe I need to trade somebody for it. And they're essentially using these child sexual abuse images as playing cards. And Yeah, yeah which is so odd because is it really about – is it really about the sexual uh, gratification at that point for a pedophile who is collecting those images? Or is it – has it switched over? Has it moved over into another area of that Venn diagram, that right. other area of overlay. And I, that's, that's what I see happening is in the, the, it becomes no longer sexual at that point. It's more of this sort of primitive and wildly dysfunctional, uh, desire for fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which is fascinating yeah. to me. Um, now when we take that back to Gerald Foos, you know, not a pedophile that we, you know, have any indication, of, right, right? But someone who is very comfortable violating the rights of others and does not see it as violating the rights of others. Mm-hmm. I mean, he there's no indication in the documentary that he sees it really as anything problematic. In fact, there is an incident, and once again, I'm not giving away. You know, we're talking about one small fraction of this documentary in this article, which I highly recommend everybody watch. Um, but he witnesses through the vent, a series of uh, incidents. One is a couple checks in. Uh, The man is a drug dealer. He hides drugs in a vent. 
Someone else comes in the room later, knows that the drugs are there, takes them, leaves. Gerald witnesses this. The couple comes back. Now the drug dealer is convinced that his girlfriend. Oh, wait. I'm, Gerald I'm takes telling the it drugs. wrong. I'm yeah. telling it wrong. Should we back that up or leave my no, mistake no, no. in? <laughs> well, now. <laughs> <laughs> well, duh. Now we have to edit it. But so basically, Gerald gets all pissed off about the drugs, which is very interesting. Like, you're fine sitting up there for years, um, completely violating people's uh, personal sense of, you know, privacy. Sure. And yet, but he has a real moral objection to drugs. Right. So he goes down, he takes the drugs out, flushes them down the toilet. The couple comes back. The drug dealer is convinced that it's his girlfriend who saw it. Mm-hmm. And he beats her to death. He beats her mm-hmm. or beats her to the point of death and then leaves her. And Gerald is so freaked out, he just goes home. Doesn't call... Uh, doesn't call an ambulance, doesn't call the police, nope. and you know sits on it for years. And then they verify that, yes, this actually happened. Because there's so much of this that you wonder, is Gerald just BSing? Is he just generating these sort of grandiose, larger-than-life stories? Right. And they verify it, that there was uh, a young woman who was killed in that hotel at that time. Uh, and that, to me, was really telling. Like, oh, I can't deal with this part of the voyeurism, so I'm going to go home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he'd let this woman die. It's right. that was that that was the point at where where I went. Wait, what? <laughs> right, right. Well, and you have to question. You know, did he know the right thing to say? Because he says, you know what, I left and she still was breathing. I saw her chest rising, and it's like, eh. Did you though? <laughs> oh, that's a good point. Maybe I, you you're know just what? I didn't even think about that. I did not even think about that, Shiloh. Of, yeah. You're absolutely right. So I don't know. It's a way to to kind of look a little bit better in that situation, but still have something salacious to sell to somebody who wants to write a book. Yeah. And the interesting thing about this story is that the documentary, um, the article, it's this sort of slice of experience in time that really does not have a crescendo. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, it's this story of this person coming forward and confessing to what he's been doing, with the exception of the death. I mean, I think that, like, that, if, if there was still, like, a, uh, you know, um, a legal uh, parameters that existed where he could be charged with neglect or something, but the statute of limitations, I'm sure, had sure. worn out by that point. In oh, fact, yeah. he may even refer to that. Yeah. But the idea, like, oh, I can come forward because there's nothing I can really get in trouble for anymore. Right. Well, then why are you coming forward? Right. What's the point? Is The point now is, like, you can't be a voyeur anymore, so is all of your energy now shifting into this sort of narcissistic mm-hmm. desire for recognition and you really to me that seemed to emerge a lot through the last like I would say last third of the documentary what's your take on that well I think it makes sense you know if if some of the exhibitionistic disorder was about this sort of um, you know power and control part that played into his narcissism and then he no longer has that now and we we know people you know, age out of, you know, some behaviors. Um, but if he now has to shift it because he has no medium for it after selling the motel, 
um, yeah, I mean, does it then, where does he have the power and control? Um, and we see him lose that at some point in the documentary when things aren't going the way he wants it to be going in the media when the book comes out. Um, and he's really rattled by that. So Yeah, he gets very childlike, mm-hmm. I would say. I mean, he gets to be like, I mean, you really see an elderly man turn into an angry four-year-old, mm-hmm. you know, which was very interesting because his wife, who is elderly herself and comes across as quite childlike, mm-hmm. at that moment she actually said something that was incredibly adult and... Yep. Yeah. I mean, it was very interesting to see this shift of power Big time. in the dynamic between them, given that level of stress. Yeah. And here's something else that I meant to talk about, like when we were, uh, when we were, you know, sort of building, not even well, a rudimentary profile of this guy of things that I would be looking at if I was evaluating him for any reason, is he and his wife are islands unto themselves. They have no family other than their children. But they they do not interact with anyone in their neighborhood. Right. They have no friends. They say they have no friends. Yeah, they say they don't they leave don't, the house. Yeah, they don't leave the house. They don't talk to people when they go to the grocery store. They have no other... There's no right. other life going on right. except what is between them mm-hmm. and this weird collecting, you know, sort of... Right. Museum environment that they've created. It's very odd. It's very odd. Yeah, it is. It is. So I highly okay. recommend yeah, it, folks. It's, very it's, good. it's great. And what we've done today is we've given you, you know, we've dipped our toes into paraphilias and we've given you two extremes, but, you know, really one that ends up being, you know, very sort of obliquely in the area of legal problems, you know, putting yourself into, uh, breaking the law. And whereas something here that's a little bit more in the gray area, but both present with these sort of constellation of character logical issues that we find fascinating and how they intersect with law and our work from day to day. Yes. I hope everybody found it interesting. Um, and wasn't too heavy, but, um, you know, it, it's a great intersection again for, our podcast and the interest of you guys out there that are continuing to listen and subscribe. And we're grateful for everyone who has thus far. Thank you so much for uh, downloading us again. We'd like to uh, thank everyone for subscribing. We'd like to welcome our new subscribers. We got a big bump last month, which was really amazing. And and thank you so much. Um, We'd love to ask you for another favor, if you would, if you would go to the iTunes store and please give us a review and um, a couple of stars or maybe four stars if you like (laughs) us that much. It'd be really cool. Yeah. Um, Some of the reviews have been great. Um, I posted, I think, one on our Instagram that was kind of my favorite. But um, anyway, yeah, check out our social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and you can email us at la not so confidential at gmail.com if you have any suggestions or of course questions related to this episode or any of the others absolutely and if you want to make it a contest to see who can come up with the most complimentary reviews <laughs> on itunes please feel free to do that oh, so funny okay folks thanks so All much right. we're going to see you next time on la not so confidential bye have a good one, folks bye bye